Hi, I'm Kat Holbrook, cook, lover of all things British and host of The Doorstep Kitchen. Welcome to series two of The Doorstep Kitchen. After a few months break, we are back with 10 more episodes. We continue to discover our great British produce from cheese to cider, seafood to truffles. There is much to learn in this series about what is growing and being cooked right here on our doorsteps. We also have a new forager, so welcome Fergus Drennan, aka Fergus the Forager. And at the beginning of each episode, I will be giving you a little update on new food and drink products, restaurants and events. In this episode, we'll be chatting all things British cheese with Seliman Sam Wilkin, head cheesemonger at the Cheese Bar Group in London and Great British Taste Award judge, who will be giving us some fantastic recommendations on what cheeses to try and how you can support the industry right now. Fergus will be talking about beefsteak mushrooms. But first, here's my update from the food world. So drinks-wise, I've seen that there's a new low-alcohol spirit called Mary. It's described as a delicate green spirit with zesty herbal flavours and a touch of fresh citrus. Uh, It's made from sustainably sourced plants, including basil, thyme, sage, coriander seeds, angelica roots, pine needles and juniper. And it's been a heavy quarantine, so I'm not going to lie. I think my liver will welcome this kind of drink as it has 6% ABV. Next up, Irish chef Richard Corrigan's Daffodil Mulligan restaurant in Shoreditch has launched quite epic looking brunch. With the 10pm curfew, it seems like brunch might be the way forward. It has a few brunch classics on the menu for the purists out there, but I'm more interested in the Mangalitsa hash and fried egg. Mangalitsa is a curly-haired um, Hungarian breed of pig and it's got really full flavoured lovely marbled meat so no doubt that will be delicious there's also chilli crab muffin and maple glazed pork and chips which also sound great lastly Hammersmith folk have a hot new deli Sam's Larder has opened on Crisp Road as an extension of nearby Sam Riverside restaurant that opened I think towards the end of last year back when things were normal good times (laughs) the shop is stocking all the fresh and store cupboard foods that the kitchen uses along with wines from the wine list and ready meals like fish and chicken and vegetable pies and seasonal casseroles and rabbit ragu pasta i saw which sounds very good so those are your three foodie things on your doorstep now let's dive into my chat with sam i'm now joined by a head cheesemonger World Cheese Award and Great Taste Award judge, a trainer for the Cheese Academy, and fellow podcast host. It's Seliman Sam Wilkin. Sam, it's lovely to have you on the show. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm really good, thank you. Yeah, really good. Um, I'm just in central, a very quiet central London, just around the corner from Pick and Cheese in Covent Garden. So for um, listeners who haven't been to Pick and Cheese, it's this incredible cheese conveyor belt restaurant in Seven Dials Market. And Sam is the head cheesemonger for the Cheese Bar Group. So they have Pick and Cheese in central London and then there's the cheese bar in Camden. We do, and actually within the next six weeks, we're going to be opening uh, the the Natalie named the Cheese Barge on Paddington Basin. Uh, so that's really exciting as well. So we just thought we'd keep things nice and simple in this difficult time and open another restaurant. <laughs> oh, gotcha, easy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you must be so bored. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really tedious. No, it's really exciting because I think, you know, I feel like we've been really lucky. There's a lot of horror stories around and... 
I feel like, you know, as a group, we've done well and, and the summer has seen, you know, a, a good, good numbers. And, and so, yeah, exciting to see what autumn and, and then Christmas, which is traditionally such a good time for cheese, uh, what that brings as well. Yeah, definitely. So, yes, cheese is your life, Sam. Yeah. And what a great life to have. When did you get into this world and how did you become this Seliman who knows everything there is to know about cheese? It's a, well, that's very kind of you to say. It's a sort of circuitous route, really. I actually um, I left university and went and trained as an actor. Oh, wow. And spent, what, eight, nine years as an actor, treading the boards, did a bit of, you know, EastEnders, and, you know, uh, doctors and funny little walk-on parts. And, you know, it was great. It was good fun. But obviously, as an actor, I spent an awful lot of time working in hospitality. And, you know, I actually met, I was working in a pub local to me in Walthamstow, and I met a guy called Rory Buchanan, mm. who was just working a couple of shifts there a week uh, basically to kind of tide him over while he set up his own business now at the time I didn't know anything about the cheese industry I knew I enjoyed cheese I loved food I was sort of fascinated by it but never kind of saw it as, as anything more than you know the, the a job that filled in between acting gigs if you like and I met Rory and actually he came from a restaurant management fine dining background up in Edinburgh and then he moved down to London and was general manager at Paxton and Whitfield on German Street for eight years so he was like the guy the guy to meet and I just came across him fortuitously at the time he was setting up a business and I sort of you know chance in my arm as many actors do go off you've got any sort of part-time work going just give us a shout and he said I'll have a think and actually a week or so later he came back I don't have anything part-time but I am looking for a junior cheesemonger full-time help with deliveries help with the packing you know speak to producers eventually go in and speak to chefs are you interested and actually I it was came at a perfect time because I I'd kind of got down to the final round funny actually I'm standing in Theatreland I'd got to the final round so it's me and two other guys uh for the for the arse end of, of a horse in Warhorse and I thought yeah I could do that or I could learn about this amazing product and have a full-time job in an industry that seems fascinating and exciting. I think has a lot of parallels with the entertainment industry anyway, because fundamentally we're giving people an enjoyable, pleasurable time. Yeah. But we yeah. use cheese and, you know, actors use music and dance and mm -hmm. whatever else. Um, so it felt like a natural progression. And that was a very steep learning curve. Um, Ruri is, is an absolute, you know, punctilious about his, his detail. And, and that was an amazing learning environment I learned. I'd say everything I know really from him. He 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 was he's absolutely key to to my career. Um, spent the first few months delivering cheeses to some of the best restaurants in town, and then moved more into the kind of you know uh, training the chefs, going into do front of house training, this that and the other, and just helping them choose the right cheeses and helping them show those cheeses off in the best possible way. And then and then I left to set set up Seliman, which uh, has kind of gone through various different guises. Initially, it was uh, events focusing around cheese pairing, cheese tasting, uh, particularly kind of cider and beer. I wanted to kind of offer something that was less rarefied than the world I'd been sort of brought up in, if you like, in cheese. Um, more accessible, both at price point, but also just I think people find wine, they shouldn't, but they find wine quite intimidating. And unfortunately, a lot of people find the world of cheese quite intimidating. I know people, you know, find it hard to go into a Neil's Yard Dairy or a La Fromagerie for feel of looking silly, you know, because they don't know anything, which is a tragedy because they're missing out on so much. And actually, I think it's the responsibility of, of good cheese shops to make it as welcoming and as kind of inclusive as possible because, you know, they have a responsibility to sell great cheese to people, in my opinion. Um, 
so from there, uh, did that for a while, started my podcast, and actually lots of people were really keen to speak to me, and I've managed to speak to some fascinating people. Uh, and that kind of raised the profile of Seliman a bit. And then, few, uh, sort of long story short, ended up speaking to Matthew, who owns the Cheese Bar, to help them with a bit of front of house training in a kind of freelance way, and then ended up, in fact, seeing that they had, they were opening a new restaurant and they were looking for a head cheesemonger across the group, and I just phoned him up and said, I want that job. That's that job is for me. It's because it's everything that that it should be really. It's very inclusive. It's fun, but it is also massively respectful of of the product of the producer. You know the way it's made is so important. The quality of the food is so important, mm. and 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 yet it's fun and engaging and an exciting place to be. So it was all those things that I'd kind of been spiraling around through my my cheese career, and, and that's sort of where I've ended up really. Um, yeah, that was, there you go. That's, that's a long story. <laughs> yeah. What a journey. Yeah. So, yes, at Pick and Cheese, the pairings are mm. very important. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit about cheese pairings in general? As we, you know, we have chutneys and relishes, but I think we could be a bit more adventurous, like you kind of represent at Pick and Cheese. Well, you can sort of, I mean, kick off with the world of drinks. I think people immediately think cheese and wine. And, mm. and yeah, there's certainly a lot of wonderful pairings out there. A lot of them very traditional, that kind of, you know, what grows together goes together kind of idea of French cheese and wine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've t- sort of taken that and, and, you know, done quite a lot of work with cider makers. And actually there's some incredible cider pairings. You're looking for, well, at both ends of the spectrum. At one end of the spectrum, kind of an idea of a complementary pairing. So you're looking for elements within each uh, uh, product if you like that mirror each other so they're not the opposite they are the same so something like a classic example is like a loire goat's cheese which is fresh and and has sort of that citrusy mineral element um, and pair that with say a sauvignon blanc from the from the similar sort of area which has good acidity it's definitely got that kind of lemony kind of vibe going on and that's a classic complementary at the other end is contrasting and the ultimate there really is salt and sweet so we're coming up to christmas it'll be here soon stilton port you know, and, and those are sort of the obvious classic pairings at either end of the spectrum. But equally with Stilton, you'd do just as well to have like a, you know, a chocolate milk stout or something like that, which has got a lot of natural sweetness to it. That's beautiful, works really well, very rich, like a, an amazing sort of chocolate fondant, you know, or a kind of crisp Herefordshire perry at the other end with the goat's cheese. But when it comes to food, you're kind of looking for similar ideas but really what you're looking for is a nice balance of each. So they will fall somewhere on the spectrum, but you're looking for elements of flavour that either are complementary or contrasting or a nice balance of the two. And also I think texture is really important. I think, you know, if you have a soft, smooth cheese, if you have a soft, smooth condiment, it's just like a mouthful of kind of nothingness. You want a bit of bite or a bit of crunch or, you know, so I love, we we have on at the moment uh, Roll Right, which is a delicious uh, washed rind cheese, a little bit like a Reblochon or a Vacheron d'Or. We're heading into the season for that just now. Um, and that's paired with a, a brown butter biscuit. So it's got this incredibly rich, buttery flavour, sweet to pick up that salt on the rind. But also it's got a real crunch to it. It's, it's you know, it's not a soft biscuit. So, it, again, that works beautifully in contrast with the cheese. So I think, you know, I mean, the secret to it, frankly, is just trying loads of stuff together and having a go, really. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there's no grand theory. It's just just taste things that you think will work and, and then try and work out why it works or not. 
Oh, yeah, I'll give those tips a go for Christmas. Definitely. Uh, if it's not cancelled, that is. <laughs> I, I have an ongoing uh, kind of Instagram chat with uh, a lady called Emma Young, who's a, a really experienced cheesemonger. She goes by Cheese Explorer on Instagram, and she used to work in wholesale at Mons, but we kind of have a back and forth about crisp pairings with cheese. Somebody put something up about Monster Munch and cheddar being this amazing combo, and you go, actually, there's an untapped, there's an untapped world there of, like, you know, retro crisp and cheese pairings to, to be looked Ooh, at. Love so I that. think, you know, watch this space. Watch this space. I think me and Emma might be onto something. Definitely. <laughs> so you've judged the Great Taste Awards in the past and they've just released the awards for this year. Were you part of that? Yes, I just did the... the so this year I was actually only on the uh, cider category. Okay. Um, I was only able to do that one. But it was, again, really interesting. It's a really interesting range of products that you get. Um it's it's a it's a good process it's quite tricky to to get it right i think sometimes but 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 once it's gone through the various layers of 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 judging if you like the the final outcome that those that win the sort of the top prizes are are very deserving of them and you know it's absolutely a seal of approval i mean i know you know there's three stars and and i don't know sometimes people can be a bit dismissive of one star but i do think it's really important that people know that if if a product has got one star it, it's done better than a significant number of other products just to get that so you know it, it's a really it's a it's a it's a brilliant idea um originated by the guild and it certainly has real power within the industry you know in terms of shelf appeal and you know just consumers really responding to those stickers definitely i think all the products are fab mm. Some interesting cheeses that have won prizes this year. So there's a Shropshire Blue from Leicestershire Handmade Cheese Company. Mm. Um, Bathsoft Cheese Company have won something. There's a Cornish Yarg mm. and a Jersey Curd from the Old Cheese Room. So a real mix. Mm. So what's your favourite British sort of classic, not too messed with cheeses then? So I think we, we, we've got a really nice kind of... Uh, uh, tradition of, of i guess you call them crumbly cheeses in the uk so territorials like you know a kafili or wensleydale or cheshire or lancashire i mean one of my all-time favorite cheeses it's a difficult question for a cheesemonger what's your favorite cheese because yeah <laughs> you know it changes daily frankly it's how how is the cheese tasting how am i feeling what's the weather like i mean you know so many factors but i'd say always in the top five is is kirkham's lancashire just that lovely kind of almost buttery crumbly sort of texture to it but then you've got this real tart yogurty kick at the end so smooth so delicious just a great cheese and it tastes it sort of tastes like a proper farmhouse cheese you know there's again it, you can taste the milk you can taste the quality of the of the pasture that the animals are on and yeah it's 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 a great one in my opinion that sounds really good i haven't tried that one mm, it's beautiful really beautiful so sam i've seen the media and people like jamie oliver talking about cheese and the coronavirus situation mm. and what's been happening so can you give us a bit of an overview on the situation? So certainly in the sector of the industry that I work at, it's all quite micro-dairy. It's small-scale artisan producers who, whose primary customer is specialist cheese shops and the hospitality industry. So, you know, back in mid-March when actually the government didn't close restaurants, but they did say don't go to restaurants, which wasn't very helpful. There was no actual guidance really at the time. The, you know, restaurants all over the place were just cancelling orders, understandably, because they didn't want piles of stock. We were actually left with quite a lot of stock that we had to find a way to move in our restaurants. Um, fortunately, we did. But what that meant is that there was suddenly a hole in a lot of cheesemakers' 
cheesemakers that I spoke to, between 80 and 90% of sales disappeared overnight. Wow. Um, which is just calamitous, really. And the mm. initial people it hit the hardest were soft cheese makers, for obvious reasons, in that they have this cheese on the shelf that they can't go, oh, well, we'll just keep it for a few months longer and see what happens. They have to sell it. Um, so they, they, I mean, the word pivot, I think, is being used, probably overused now, but the, the, those businesses pivoted very, very rapidly. And, uh, you know, I have to say, looking back, I'm incredibly uh, proud, actually, of, of the way that the industry responded, the way the producers responded. You know, people who, you know, barely had a, a website were suddenly selling direct to the customer online, uh, you know, through Instagram, through all, all sorts of channels to get their, to get their, uh, um, products to market and at the same time you know i would say in a big way because of mr oliver and places like nils yard dairy making a noise about it the public were hyper aware of these people struggling and people weren't going out they weren't you know they weren't leaving home but they might be either on furlough or working from home so they still had money coming in and they were thinking well i'm not going to the pub i'm not spending you know, 30, 40 quid in the pub for a few pints. I'm, I, why don't I just get something interesting in? I'll buy a box of delicious cheese, do that. That's something I really hope carries on. I'll be interested to see how that kind of changes through time. But, uh, you know, for sure, it was a, it was a big trend early on. And I, I know that, that actually a lot of producers have stuck with it. You know, they still do their, you know, their monthly cheese box or you can still buy cheese direct from the producer. It sort of came around a similar time as, companies like farms to feeders i don't know if you know farms to feeders yeah um yeah so you know linking effectively linking the producer direct with the customer which is not something beyond maybe farmers markets we've ever really done before in this country so effectively sidestepping the wholesaler which is interesting that's an interesting one as a former wholesaler myself um you know, you, you could uh, you could strongly argue that wholesalers not only just are the middleman, but they also add value by storing and maturing. And, you know, a lot of the cheeses you'll get direct might be slightly younger than you used them to be. Um, but then we sort of, the, actually a lot of soft cheese makers moved quickly enough and effective enough and made decision by furloughing staff and stopping production, um, which was okay for some who could perhaps sell their milk as liquid milk um, but but tricky for others. So Martin Gott up in Cumbria, who makes St James cheese, which is a kind of a cult classic, really washed rind, sheep's milk cheese, always changing with whatever the weather. Almost, it's amazing. But he started making two harder cheeses that obviously have a longer life that he can store for longer, um, which means he doesn't have to, anything to sell straight away. But it means that you know he he could use the milk you can't furlough animals is what he said to me you can't furlough sheep uh, they still need milking you know 27 seven days a week 365 days of the year kind of thing yeah um so you know that that was a well not 365 days of the year actually because martin is strictly seasonal but anyway that, that rather erodes my point but the, the idea being that you know they're not just finding new ways to market with their own products that they use that they usually make they're also making new products to try and either preserve the milk or, or you know create a point of difference so real innovation and kind of energy at the early stages of, of lockdown and then it started to hit kind of the you know the sort of semi-hard cheeses um i know montgomery's had a huge backlog of ogleshield that kind of raclette style cheese so good such <laughs> a great cheese and actually i have to say the batches that we're getting from them because they've sat 
in their maturing rooms for that bit longer, I, I think are a really special cheese. I think a lot of people are buying it as a sort of a melter, as a, you know, great to go in a high-end burger or a sandwich or something like that, but actually it, rarely making it as a kind of a table cheese. And I think it's got so much depth of flavour now. It's a beauty. So, you know, just from a consumer's point of view, there's all these lovely things coming out. I know Arthur Allsop down, uh, down at Allsop and Walker in Sussex, he won't actually tell me anything more about the cheese. It's top secret, but he made a few, he's made a, a few batches of a smaller cheese than his usual Mayfield, which is this huge kind of Emmental style cheese that he's made as a result of, of lockdown. So exciting. You know, yeah, so there's that kind of thing coming out of it. There have been fewer casualties than expected initially. I think I've, you know, I, I don't think we've seen the last of it though, in terms of the effects on the on hospitality and therefore, uh, you know, small producers. But I hope now that those small producers have, you know, they can put their energy into making cheese rather than desperately struggling to get their, you know, find new markets because they've spent the time doing it now and they're kind of well set up. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, I've seen a lot of support, and I think that's great. Mm. But there's always more to learn, and there's brilliant cheese boxes that you you can buy mm. that you can get with just British cheeses to support um, support local. Um, are there any cheeses that you think we should be eating right now, like soft cheeses that we should be buying? Well, if the soft cheeses weren't sold at the beginning, then you probably are not wanting to eat them now. Um, oh, yeah. But, yeah, very true. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I know, I know, I mentioned Arthur also there because I, I know that a lot of his his you know he used to sell a lot of cheese to BA, for example, British Airways, and obviously that's a big old hole in his in his kind of uh, profit and loss. Um, but just generally, I think just keep eating more British cheese. I mean, and there's great ways to to do that i mean you know i have you know obviously the cheese bar we do our we are we we sort of set up now in a really kind of efficient quality way i think it was a bit of a scrabble to begin with but we've now you know it's all nicely packaged and tasting notes and all sorts for these wonderful uh cheese boxes that you can get from the cheese bar neil's yard dairy um i have to mention as well the courtyard dairy up in settle in yorkshire they they do a fantastic selection of, of of british farmhouse cheeses um you can either go on and choose particular cheeses or you can do mung choice or all sorts so there's lots of ways to get get out there and, and support and and i think there is a feeling that because the message has perhaps dropped out of the papers a little bit that that it's gone away but but these people still need still need our support and we have a great british industry we have a great british cheese industry amazing variety amazingly delicious things and people who are you know passionate and courageous actually to be doing what they do and still doing what they do so uh, yeah i think all the support they can get really yeah well i think it's so nice that the cheese bar group just focus on british cheeses and the product is just such great quality are there any other cheese restaurants that you think we need to be going to these Gosh, well, it's difficult, but I think, I mean, I think we are the only people whose menu is structured absolutely around cheese. Um, I think there is, I can't remember the name of it now, but there's like a raclette sort of Swiss-style restaurant. La Fromagerie is definitely worth checking out, but they're not, uh, they do use cheese, obviously, in a lot of their recipes, but they also have a nice sort of uh, uh, menu. Their head chef, Alessandro, is a really, really good cook. Um, So they've got some really nice stuff. Um, 
and actually, if you're ever up in the north, if you're on a little staycation up north around Settle in, in that beautiful part of the world, do pop into the Courtyard Dairy. They've got, um, in fact, Andy, Andy Swinsco, who is, uh, again, one of my, one of my heroes, actually, uh, great cheesemonger, but also just a really great advocate for small scale and, and farmhouse cheeses. Um, he, he's bought a couple of uh, skiing, ski gondolas, um, you know, those things that take you up the mountain, and he's, he's popped them in his car park and is serving raclette in them. I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> It's great. He's he's great. So yeah, definitely if you're up that neck of the woods, check them out. And down west, I'd go. I check out uh, Two Belly in Bristol. They they do a really nice job. They they make some cracking toasties. Not as good as the cheese bars, of course, but still <laughs> not not bad at all. Not bad at all. Amazing. And another thing that's that's always cropping up, but I feel has taken off quite quite recently in the cheese sphere is vegan cheese. I'd be interested to get your opinions on mm. it. Do you think it's an absolute no-no, or do you think there's some decent stuff out there? I, I, I think I think the second point is the problem in many ways. I think so. Having I won't name him because it's quite a, an energetic lobby, if you like. But a, a vegan cheesemaker himself said the trouble with vegan cheese is it's, it's not as it's not as well known a product yet, so it mm. doesn't have its own identity. So it has to it sort of for ease of sale has to say cheddar style or camembert style you know he he said my hope is that one day each sort of style of vegan cheese will be its own distinct thing and actually the quality will stand up on its own two feet and won't have to i mean you know there's some pretty there's some pretty you know aggressive people on both sides in terms of their opinions i i try and be a bit a little bit more diplomatic but i don't think there is uh, any anything like the range of of quality products uh, in the world of vegan cheese not i mean not even close um there's maybe one or two producers and and also you know i do take issue with with the kind of the green credentials if you like um i do think that there is a lot more to be said for you know perhaps potentially so let's look at martin gott for example who makes that st james he's sort of you know regeneratively farmed pasture-fed sheep who you know we know we know we know the land that they're that they're kind of grazed on we know the milk where it comes from we know that he doesn't do anything funny with the land anything funny with the milk you know we know where that product comes from uh, you know how can you how can you stand up and say you know these cashew nuts from the philippines I, you know, and I've actually asked the cheesemaker this. You know, do you know do you know the person where they come from? Uh, yeah, yeah, they come from the Philippines. But, well, no, that's not. That's a country. That's you know the range of farming practices. I, I have real issue with that, and that and that actually that argument is so easily levelled against cheesemakers. I get it on kind of factory scale American dairy. Yeah, I get it, but it isn't fair to lump in, say, someone like Fen Farm Dairy in Suffolk who experienced a huge amount of online vitriol from that particular segment. I, I think I think there's room for everybody, but I think we all need to be a bit more honest about the pros and cons, or, or, you know, of what of what we do, if you like. Are they um, the ones that make Baron by God? Yes, that's right. So that lovely raw milk brie style. Oh, yeah, it's so good. It's pretty intensely delicious cheese. I mean, that actually, I have to say, alongside uh, Kirkham's Lancashire, that would be up there as well. And Johnny's, Johnny's just an awesome guy. In fact, he he's someone I've kind of got, you know, within the cheese industry, kind of grown up with. Really, he him and his 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 wife Dulcie, who runs the business as well, uh, they came in to Buchanan's. It probably in my first few weeks when I was there to show Ruri. You know, they'd found out that Ruri was someone to speak to about quality cheese and they brought in the first few batches of their cheese to show him and see what he thought of it. 
you know, so to see them now, you know, they're kind of really probably one of the all-time great British cheeses. And actually, they've only been making it for, what, seven or eight years max. Um, it's pretty amazing. And, and, you know, their butter is amazing as well, if you've never had their butter. And their yoghurt that they make, their skier. Have you had that? Oh, no, I haven't had their yoghurt. Oh, my goodness. It's absolutely delicious. It is. It really is special. Um, so, yeah, they don't do anything badly. And you must have visited a lot of these farms as well. Yeah, and I, that's one of the bits of the job that I love the most, actually, is that pre-COVID, every month I'd take a small group of be it front of house or kitchen staff or whoever you know three or four members of, of the company to visit one of our producers because I just think it's incredibly important that you know when we're speaking to the customer pe- people have an idea of who makes this cheese and I think there aren't really any other products that I can think of where you know it, it's it's sort of the, the the milk is is farmed if you like the animals are farmed on the farm the milk is is milked on the farm the cheese is made on the farm and really then that cheese doesn't go through any other processes until it hits your plate uh, you know an incredible restaurant in london so it's the ultimate kind of farmhouse product and so it's key that you understand the people behind it and and actually i do love cheese but i think i my heart is with the producers and the farmers even more so i think you know that i have so much admiration for what they do and and you don't get into high-end artisan cheese making because you want to make a you know you're not del boy you don't want to make a million but you want to make something real and authentic and delicious and you know i'm very lucky to work with those people i have to say yeah yeah i feel like british vineyard trips and staycations have become really popular yeah so and i think visiting farms and cheese makers is the next holiday activity on the agenda yeah and they tend to be in places where you want to go i mean i know that um i don't quite know where they are with the building but i know uh giel spearling down at uh, cornish gowda um they've got planning permission to build a visitor center to do you know so they're going to be doing glamping and you can go and make cheese and you know they're, they're really going for that that side of you know kind of agriturismo i think they call it in, in italy that that side of things um and quicks do their farm tours which are all well they don't anymore you know they will hopefully start them up again next year hugely popular um so yeah that's that's yeah I, I i agree with you i agree with you i think the only slight issue is it's one thing walking around a vineyard it's another thing getting kind of completely sanitized and wearing a hairnet and a white coat and, wa- and walking around a cheese cheese room i think maybe uh it's not a glamorous no life, <laughs> but for real foodies out there i think it would be great oh i definitely think there's a market for it i'd love to do it it's the next step from when you're a kid and you go down to Cheddar Gorge with all your schoolmates on a bus. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> oh, no, I loved it. It was great. <laughs> but it's just taking it that step further, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and you, you know, generally speaking, there aren't any, any better advocates for their own products than the makers themselves, you know. Um, you, you, get the slight, you get the occasional sort of slightly surly cheesemaker who'd rather you weren't there. But generally, <laughs> the people who run the business, they're so proud of what they do they just want to share it and 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 actually i would say that if if anybody is interested in going to see a cheesemaker i'd say now's pops not the time they're on a kind of a war footing at the moment but maybe next year find a way drop a message on instagram or or via email and, and often they will go yeah please do come down we'd love to show you what we do because you know i think again dairy has a pretty bad reputation yeah um you know a bit environmentally or, or welfare or anything like that but but actually i think these people want to show the, the world that what they do is you know careful caring ethical you know all those things and do you think there are any cheeses out there that we should be eating more of like goats or sheep or anything else for that matter 
Well, I think looking out for new cheeses is always interesting because, as I say, you've got these cheeses being made. I'd say there's a couple of cheeses. One uh, is Crookwheel, which is a sheep's milk cheese from Martin Gott. That's really interesting cheese and tasting, I think, particularly delicious at the moment. Um, on a non-British front, we're just entering, we're dipping our toes into uh, Vacheron Mondor season. So Vacheron Mondor is this incredible uh, cow's milk cheese from the Alps, from the Jura. Um, and it's only made uh, between, I think it's October and February. Um, it's incredibly oozing. I mean, often you'll see it in like a little wooden box uh, and actually you won't cut it into wedges. You'll literally take a spoon and just get stuck in. It's, it's like a delicious, it's almost like a fondue in a cheese. It's glorious. Um, people get quite, that with a glass of champagne is probably the most decadent time you can have with some cheese. It's really really special um so I'd, I'd look out for that just now um but no i almost don't want to highlight an individual cheese i think just go and discover and go, go into cheese shops don't be scared of you know what can be slightly intimidating places uh, just just get in there get stuck in ask if you can taste things as well ask about the producers you know the cheesemonger behind the counter should be able to tell you all those things and and, and they'll look after you and and help you buy some delicious cheese to try at home mm. Sam, raw milk and raw cheese have had a lot of traction recently, I think. Mm. So what is it all about? So I suppose we should just sort of clarify what they are to begin with. Yes, good idea. <laughs> raw, raw milk is, is not just unpasteurised. So I think there is a mistake that's made there. Often pasteurising cheese, we bring it up to 72 degrees for 17 seconds and uh, it basically kills a lot of the bacteria, which renders it safe. Um, but it also destroys a lot of the complexity arguably i think a lot of pasteurized cheesemakers would disagree but i would say that it, on generally speaking it does it, it destroys a lot of the complexity of the cheese it also makes it virtually impossible for that cheese to reflect uh, the terroir if you like that the place uh, that it's made raw milk is untampered with in any way and in fact that the, the, it often arrives in the cheese making parlor still warm from the cow so it has that latent heat that starts kick starts the fermentation process towards splitting the curds in the way so raw milk cheese is is about as traditional as you get i mean it's how cheese was made thousands of years ago when that first you know that milk that split into curds and whey was observed by someone and that human nature took hold and wanted to control the process and ended up making cheese um raw milk cheese i think it's an interesting one because i unexpectedly has been kind of taken on by health food people there's this idea of uh, the microbiome in your gut you know obviously having huge influence on health not just physical but mental as well and that actually something like raw milk cheese is extremely beneficial for kind of rebalancing your gut um, um, so it's delicious. It's good for you. Um, it actually helps lower cholesterol. Interestingly enough, there are certain bacteria within raw milk that are destroyed in pasteurization that, that actually lower cholesterol. Um, so, you know, cheese, cheese is good for you. Cheese is good for you. Well, that's music to my ears. What are some of the best ones, do you think? Well, Johnny, Johnny Crickmore, who makes Baron Bygod. Um, ah, of course. Uh, Graham Kirkham, um, Jamie Montgomery. We've got quite, I'd say, a lot of the really trad farmhouse producers. So those that, the key thing with raw milk as well is, generally speaking, you have to be a farmer. Mm. You have to know where your milk's coming from, you know, right down to the field in which the cows are grazed. Because, you know, I can't remember who said this to me, but I think it sums it up perfectly. You know, milk is designed to... to basically 
feed life so mm. it, it benefits life and that that sounds great if it's a baby or if it's a calf but it could also be a pathogen or you know something harmful effectively mm -hmm. so raw milk is a great breeding ground for dangerous things so you have to be sure that your farming practices are sound that your pasture is well looked after that your cows are healthy that there's nothing being passed on into the milk that could either ruin the cheese or be you know dangerous so generally speaking they're, they're the more sort of traditional farmhouse producers or people who have an incredibly close working relationship. So they're, they're you know, cheese. So, I, so for example, Dave Holton down at, uh, who makes uh, Edmund Chew and Graceburn, you know, their lovely feta style cheese in jars. Um, they, 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 Grace, uh, Edmund Chew is a raw milk cheese and that's because actually their cheese making facility is on a farm. So although they're separate businesses, they buy their milk, they know everything there is to know about the herd. So it's effectively the same thing as, you know, being a farmhouse cheese maker without having to own the cows. Mm -hmm. So just going back on Graceburn, mm. in series one of The Dorset Kitchen, I spoke to Chef James Donnelly and we chatted a bit about the incredible cheeses on our doorsteps and how we don't necessarily need to import things like feta when we have things like Graceburn, which are, mm. Mm. it's a really fresh cheese, sort of brined, well not really brined actually, like steeped in rapeseed oil and herbs. Yeah, exactly. So it takes on some of that oiliness, but it's also the combination of sort of herbs that they put in there with it. Um, it's a more kind of um, Middle Eastern style uh, cheese than perhaps a kind of a, a Greek Turkish style feta. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a gorgeous cheese. I mean, you know, there's this White Lake down in Somerset who make a nice, uh, excuse me, halloumi style. So yeah, there's all sorts, but even down to kind of, you know, raclette, that great uh, French, you know, sort of ski. If you've ever been skiing, there's raclette, like melting cheese in a kind of half moon, being scraped on potatoes. You know, Ogleshield is a wonderful, uh, and I would say more kind of like savoury, meaty kind of version of a raclette. Um, you know, Reblochon, you've got Baronet from the old cheese room who you mentioned earlier, who make their glorious Jersey curd. Uh, they make a kind of a Reblochon style cheese for tartiflette if you want to use it that way or just eat it because it's delicious. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, buying British, supporting British cheese is not is not is not a difficult sacrifice to make. It's not like you're missing out on anything if, if you do just buy British. Yeah. So lastly, Sam, a question that I ask all my guests. What is your favourite seasonal British ingredient right now? So I suppose in terms of seasonality, for me, my other passion is cider. British cider, I think, is having an absolute renaissance at the moment. We've got some incredibly kind of beautiful producers and, and chefs out there and sommeliers who are taking a chance and going, do you know what, this is our native wine. Let's let's get it on the wine list. So you're seeing it in some amazing places. So, you know, Lyle, Silo, um, Carriages Bar and Grill. You know, there's some really top-end restaurants that are getting cracking British ciders on. So I'd have to say... You know, my friends in the cider world are, are, you know, noses to the grindstone right now. It's we're sort of heading into uh, some areas of the country are already well into, but but harvest so harvest for the apples to make the cider. So I'd say that the the, the, the the apple in all its many different forms, be it eater, cooker, cider. There's all sorts of you know thousands of variables, you know variations on on the apple. But but yeah, the British apple is one of my one of my favourite products, definitely. Oh, well, the humble apple is amazing. Well chosen. Thanks. Oh, it's so nice to speak to you. Yes, you too. Thank you so much for coming on. Happy to. Anytime. Anytime. Before we end today's show, we'll be hearing from Fergus Drennan, a.k.a. Fergus the Forager. He's a wild food experimentalist, educator, and runs regular immersive foraging courses. If you go down to the woods today, 
you really could be in for a great surprise. And not just the woods, but perhaps even your garden or a park or anywhere where you come across big old mature oaks and sweet chestnuts. Now, they could be living or, and be pretty healthy, or it could even be like the trunks of dead trees kind of lying on the ground. And from now, and in fact from August right through to November, but now is a really good time. It's worth looking, particularly if you can see any areas of the tree with kind of historic wounds. Could be really high up, could be at head height, and could even be right down at the ground. And it might not necessarily be a wound where the beefsteak fungus is growing. And that's what's really a joy to find this time. So beefsteak fungus is a gorgeous fungus to find. And as a beginner forager, a beginner to the joys of gathering fungi, it's a really good one. And it's really good because unlike some other genre of fungi, for example, brittle gills, where... You know, there's some good edibles, but they're hiding out within a genre that has about 150 species or the webcats, just a couple of edible species in a genre of 800 or so. Beefsteak fungus only has one member of its genus in this country, Fistulina hepatica, to give it its botanical name. And it's wonderful for so many reasons as well. And that is to do with its multiple ways that it can be used. And do you know what? I think before I get onto that, I should say what it looks like. Of course, you can look, look this up. But it's interesting because it starts off looking pretty much like a strawberry or strawberry sweet. In fact, even a little red fist. And you might think fistulina means kind of little fist, but it actually means little pipes or tubes because it's one of those fungi that on the underside has that structure rather than kind of gills or even spines that some fungi have. And its species name, Hepatica, refers to what it can look like when it's much older, meaning liver-like. But beefsteak is a really good description because if you cut it down the middle, it looks like raw steak. Now, it's one of those fungi that can be eaten raw or cooked which is quite unusual. Raw, I think the best way is to have it in really thin slices, carpaccio style, dressed with a little bit of lemon, some olive oil, perhaps some garlic, a bit of salt and pepper. Just serve it on a plate as a little starter. It's absolutely delicious. Now, a lot of people also make drinks with it. So you can, you can chop it up and you can put it in vodka or gin or rum. Even after like 10 minutes, the red will be oozing out. Later on, you'll want to add some sugar. After a few weeks, add some sugar and spice it up a little bit. So that is absolutely gorgeous. And some people will even like, you know, playing with the fact that it's called beefsteak, turn it into jerky by brushing it with their favourite spicy barbecue seasoning and, and partially dehydrating it. So have a look. If you're lucky, you'll find some. And you don't have to be that lucky with this mushroom to find one that isn't full of maggots. In fact, it's rarely maggoty, particularly at a young stage and at a kind of middle-aged stage. So I, I say look for it in September, October, and you're likely to find some good ones. But as with all foraging, you have to pay attention to find it. Good luck. Thanks, Fergus. I didn't realise their colour was so vibrant that you could literally die a spirit instead of 30 seconds. 
To learn more about wild edibles, you can follow at Fergus the Forager on Instagram and at the Doorstep Kitchen for seasonal recipes. That's all for today's show. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please do share it with a friend who you think would also like it. And join us next week where I'll be chatting to ciderologist Gabe Cook about the wonderful drink and Fergus the Forager will be back to talk to us about rose hips. Bye for now. <laughs>